I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you for the power that your spirit represents. And once again, Lord, we see that power in action in this book. I pray for that power to be here this morning as we open it up. I pray for your spirit to guide us, to accompany us, and to once again make this a permanent value. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for those of you who've not heard the story of Esther, it is the story of a, of a common girl being chosen as queen and her cousin Mordecai. It's basically the story about they together defeat the devil as he's trying to destroy the Jewish nation in Persia. And if there's anything I would like you to, to, to take away from this story, it's, it's to understand that this story occurs in the context of war, and it's a war that actually started in the Garden of Eden between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And it's a war that's ongoing. It's a war that's going to continue until Christ returns. And the very first part of that war was directed at preventing Jesus from becoming flesh in the first place. And to do that, the head of the kingdom of darkness, actually the one who Jesus referred to as the prince of this world, he sought constantly to destroy the Jews, the nation that Jesus would come from. Because he knew if he destroyed the Jews, he would be destroying, quote, Jesus before he even had a chance to be born. And Esther is just one of a series of stories describing how God's sovereign yet invisible hand protected and kept the Jews from destruction so that Jesus could be born of Mary. And so I want to pick up on the story of Esther when an, an edict for the destruction of all the Jews has been issued. And Esther's cousin Mordecai is, is confronting her with what she has to do in order to stop it. Mordecai's dressed in sackcloth and ashes. He's screaming out in agony. He's stopped at the palace gate. He's come to the palace to lay out his desperate case before his cousin Esther, who now happens to be the queen of Persia. Mordecai has learned that on one given day, some 12 months from that day, every citizen in Persia has been called on by this edict to take up arms to, quote, kill, annihilate, and murder any Jew they knew as an associate, friend, or colleague. I mean, it meant the annihilation of all Jews in Persia, which is a place that Mordecai and Esther once thought of as safe. See, both Esther and Mordecai had achieved much in their new home. They were part of a, a vast movement of Jews who had been driven out of Israel into Persia after Israel suffered this stunning defeat at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And for a long period of time, they had managed to hide their Jewish identity and prosper in this new pagan culture that they found themselves in. But all that changed. It changed in an instant when Mordecai saw what the edict commanded. And once again, we see Israel itself under attack. I mean, the kingdom of darkness has a very simple plan. Eliminate the Jews before Jesus could even be born. And both sides had their champions. I mean, the kingdom of light had Mordecai and Esther protecting them. And the kingdom of darkness had Haman, a man we'll find out about, and, this, and their king. They were the ones on the attack. Haman just happened to be the second most powerful man in all of Persia. This is a this is a man whose very presence required that everyone bow. <clears throat> and everyone did bow when Haman entered, when Haman came by. Everyone in the country bowed with the exception of one man. And that man was Mordecai. And so revenge for Mordecai's refusal to bow became Haman's obsession. 
he was an ego-driven man, and the idea of somebody refusing to bow to him incensed him to the point where he convinced the king that Mordecai and his fellow Jews were a people group that should no longer be allowed to live in Persia. Now, the king was so indifferent, so uncaring, that he agreed to Haman's plan, not even realizing that he was condemning his queen, Esther, in doing so. I mean, he didn't even know it. Esther herself was a Jew. And the edict is read. So Mordecai goes to the only place where he feels he has a hope of survival, and that's to the palace itself. He goes to his cousin Esther, who's now queen, and he explains what's happening to her eunuch. And Esther communicates back to Mordecai through the eunuch the dilemma that she herself finds herself in. This is what she says. This is Esther 4.11. She says, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except to the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. I mean, Esther understands all all too well the nature of her husband, the king. I mean, this is a a man famous for his instability, famous for his brutality. And so she tells Mordecai, I haven't had any contact with the king for over a month. This is how Mordecai replies. He says, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether or not you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is an amazing paragraph. You know, one of the things that's been stated repeatedly about the book of Esther is is that there's there's no mention of God specifically anywhere in the entire book. There's no reference anywhere in the book to God. And yet here in one paragraph, without any reference to God, are three of the most iconic statements ever made about the nature of faith and the gospel. I mean, in this one paragraph alone, God reveals three basic principles of spiritual warfare that that govern God's victory over the enemy, and that also apply to us today in how we share the gospel. God shows us in this paragraph, first, that the gospel is mission critical, secondly, that it is time sensitive, and thirdly, that it is recklessly proclaimed. First, let's look at this issue of the gospel being mission critical. This is what Mordecai says to Esther. He says, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. So we look at that statement. Mordecai is referring to the existential threat that he and his people are experiencing. And what he's telling Esther is that should she decide to protect herself, well, then relief and deliverance is going to come, but it's going to come from a different place. And the obvious fact is there is no other place for this relief to come from other than God. And so what's unsaid but is clearly implied is that the protection of the Jews was a mission-critical undertaking. And that means that there's nothing more important than the mission itself. 
what, what is being said here is that if Esther fails the mission by abandoning the Jews, then God's going to simply find another way of delivering them. And we understand the principle that he's speaking of as critical to understanding the nature of the gospel. You see, at its most basic level, it too is mission critical. We who have been given the privilege of knowing Christ, we also have been given the responsibility of telling a lost world that God himself became one of us, that he lived a flawless life, that he went to the cross, and that he offered his perfection to exchange it for our imperfection. And we, we get to tell the world that by placing our faith in Christ's death on the cross that we too can stand before a perfect God made by Christ's perfection, now worthy of heaven itself. And there's nothing more important in our entire lives than the mission of glorifying God by proclaiming his gospel. And the mission itself is described by Jesus who says in Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, name of the, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, so Mordecai's words to Esther, he says, If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Uh, that reveals to us the mission-critical nature of God's interaction with man as we present the gospel. You see, if we don't obey God's command to share the gospel, then relief and deliverance for that process is going to come from another place. Let me just give you an example of what mission critical means when it comes to sharing the gospel. I mean, we, we understand that God has called all of us to the task of proclaiming the gospel. Even though we're speaking truth to folks who were just like we were at one point, spiritually dead, children of wrath, incapable on their own of responding. Well, th those words, they described me perfectly before I came to Christ. I was completely dead. I was absolutely indifferent to the claims of Christ. I was filled with wrath towards a God I couldn't even begin to grasp or understand. I mean, I'd heard the gospel multiple times, and it never penetrated a micron into my spirit until, by the grace of God, he made that gospel just come alive. And suddenly, what had been utter foolishness became absolute life-saving wisdom. See, that's what God's Holy Spirit does. But he does it through us. Two of the most important people in my life to this day in all likelihood, have no idea whatsoever the effect that they had on my life. There's a little bit of history here. When I first got out of college, I, I had a degree in English, but I decided that I really wanted to pursue science. So I, I went to Michigan State to pursue a second degree, this time in wildlife biology. And it required that I take all these hard sciences that I had never taken before, like organic chemistry and statistics, genetics, and the like. And I, I spent an entire year immersed in the study of science in order to gain enough hard science credits to get into grad school. And so after a year, a year I had accumulated enough credits to, to get into school, and Janice and I left Michigan. We moved to Vermont, and I worked as a carpenter while I applied to different schools. I eventually wound up going to San Francisco State University to study behavioral biology. I think it's pretty obvious to everybody I'm not a behavioral biologist. I mean, I wound up abandoning my career pursuit halfway into my master's because we had, we had two kids and money was extremely tight and the field that I had chosen had very little economic value. In fact, the primary market that, of the degree I was shooting for was teaching. 
then I remember sitting down one day with my academic advisor, and, and he said, look, let me be frank with you. For every teaching position, there's 150 applicants. I just knew somebody. That's how I got the job. And so I, I basically decided it was time to reluctantly give up my pursuit and just put it aside to earn a living, which at this point I was doing by, by being a cabinet maker. And I understand Janice and I were complete pagans when I got accepted to graduate school, and we got miraculously saved when I was on my way out to California, me in Michigan at the house of a friend that I had met at Michigan State, Janice on her own somewhere in Colorado about a month later. But that's another story. The point is we both arrived in San Francisco as brand new Christians. And if you told me 50 years ago where I would be today, I, I would have either laughed in your face or fainted. See, many a times I, I had given up my dream of becoming a, a, a behavioral biologist, and I wondered why in the world, this is after I became a Christian, why in the world did God lead me on such a wild goose chase? Why did he make, he make me spend an entire year in Michigan studying sciences I would never use? I mean, I thought of all those nights of studying the sacrifice that, Jesus had, that Janice had actually made. I mean, she allowed me to be a full-time student because she actually worked as a nursing instructor yeah, she's a nurse. She doesn't tell anybody that, but she was a nursing instructor at Michigan State with all these scared little nursing students in her office, and that, that was a big deal. And, and she did that, and all for what? What was the point? Well, God let me know in no uncertain terms exactly what it was for. And he let me know by, by reminding me of two different people who entered very briefly into my life and then left while I was in Michigan. One was a door-to-door -door salesman. The other was an electrician who had been assigned to my apartment to do some work. And I, I had offered them both on two separate occasions a cup of coffee, and it so happens that both of them during that time took the time and effort to present the gospel to me. And both of them to this day, they have, they have absolutely no idea the change that that gospel made in my life. I mean, I, I was polite, I was respectful to both of them, but I told them in no uncertain terms, I wasn't buying their gospel at all. I mean, it literally took me years later to realize that, that each of these men, by being faithful and proclaiming that mission-critical gospel, that they were being potentially used by God to move me closer and closer to the kingdom. And when I finally came to know the truth of the gospel, I was finally able to put the dots together. Then I realized how profound in effect, how mission critical their presentation of the gospel had been to me. So two of the first people that I plan on looking up when I get to heaven is this door-to-door -door salesman and that electrician, neither of whom had the satisfaction of knowing that what effect they're giving me the gospel had. I mean, they thought it was completely fruitless. I mean, I now know that God had, for reasons known only to him, chosen to give me the gift of the gospel. And I also know that in, in God's economy, sending me to another state for an entire year to study something I would never, ever practically use, that was just the means to get me to the actual reason why I wound up in Michigan. And these folks never realized that they had been sent on a mission-critical task, and that was to present me with the gospel. You know, on one level, you might claim they failed at their task. I mean, after all, I rejected their gospel. But understand, God would not be denied. And so he raised up another. And then another one was my own brother. Another was a university professor who was at a house, the house in Michigan where I got saved. He 
guy who challenged my assertions until the Holy Spirit just cracked my spirit wide open. But that's how a mission-critical task operates. I mean, I thought the most important thing in the world was my studies and my academics getting into graduate school. But God thought otherwise. And because my getting the gospel was mission-critical, God had no problem whatsoever sending Janice and me on a one-year detour just so these two people could present me with the good news. So the next time you find yourself trying to imagine, what in the world is God doing in my life? Allow the possibility that he's simply positioning you for a, a mission-critical circumstance, one that God's never going to fail at. You know, if that electrician, if that book salesman had decided to keep silent instead of opening their mouth, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced relief would have come to me from another place because God's never going to allow his will to be frustrated by our sin. Again, consider how Mordecai put it to Esther. He says, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. I mean, Mordecai tells Esther, if she fails at her God-given task, God's going to find another way just to get the job done. See, mission critical means the mission itself is what matters, and God's going to do whatever needs to be done to get that mission accomplished. I mean, in this case, it was a salvation of the, of the Jewish nation. And in our case, it's receiving the good news. I mean, if God has given you the task of giving somebody the good news, and you fail at it, either through fear, laziness, or indifference, then relief and deliverance for that person is going to come from another place. And I understand something. I understand those are very dangerous words to speak. But it's true. You see, for some, this is going to sound like an invitation to stay silent and do absolutely nothing about the gospel, because after all, if, if I choose not to speak, God's going to just raise up somebody else. That's one of the reasons why people call reformed people the frozen chosen. It's because many have taken the notion that, that, that it's God alone who is able to move people to understand and accept the gospel. And if that's the case, then why not just offload that responsibility from people to God? Now, R.C. Sproul was once confronted by a student who asked him, what, what, what motive do you have, R.C., for sharing the gospel? If you believe that, that only those whom God has chosen are going to respond, then he said, I don't know. Maybe the fact that the king of the universe has commanded it has something to do with that. And that's really to the point. I mean, I think it's very easy to lose sight of the fact of what we're here for. I mean, we're here to glorify God by proclaiming his gospel and thus advancing his kingdom. I mean, there's nothing more than the kingdom of God. There's no privilege higher or greater or more important than sharing what God has done in our lives. But not only is, is the proclamation of the gospel mission critical, just like Esther's proclamation to the king, but it's also, we find out, time-sensitive. Esther 4.14 says again, and who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And again, back to my history. I mean, it was, it was winter of 1971. And Michigan, if you know, is incredibly cold in the winter. One day I heard a knock on my door, and I opened it to find a, a semi-frozen door-to-door salesman. And I told him right off the bat, I said, look, I'm a student. I have no time. I have no money. I have, you have no chance whatsoever of selling me a book. 
And he had just immediately abandoned his pitch, and he said, hey, look, I, I am freezing. Can I just come in and get warm for a second? I, I said, sure. I said, come on in. I said, would you like a cup of coffee? And what, 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 what followed was a conversation that eventually led to my need for Jesus Christ. And again, I remember very little of the details, except that I, I very politely and very firmly told him, look, I am not interested in this stuff at all. I mean, I, I literally never gave a moment's thought to that conversation until years later when I realized how incredibly important that conversation had been in my life. I mean, I, my guess is that that book salesman thought that was a total waste of time. I mean, he'd been trudging through ice and snow, going door to door, getting nowhere, probably thinking, what a waste this job is. In reality, he had no idea that he had come into this kingdom of God into this dumpy little duplex in East Lansing, Michigan, for such a time as this. It's not that different from Mordecai's situation. I mean, Mordecai was desperate to impress Esther the, the fact that nothing had happened in their lives by chance. He wanted her to recognize that, that her meteoric rise from captured slave to queen in all of Persia just possibly had a timestamp on it. And what he was trying to get her to see was that, that there was far, a far greater power working behind the scenes, orchestrating what appeared to be happening by chance. Well, you know, I see very little difference between the earth-shattering consequences of Esther's response and the earth-shattering, at least to me, consequences of that book salesman's decision to speak. And the bottom line for us in this is, is we live in this culture, in this place, in this time, under the exact same circumstance that Mordecai and Esther lived in with regard to God's invisible hand. And that is that nothing, and by that I mean everything, is related to Romans 8.28. All things do work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Everything flows from the invisible hand of God. This is a God who is capable of superintending every intention of every human being, regardless of whether it's well-intended or intended for evil. And every one of us is going to be given multiple opportunities to recognize that for God and his kingdom, nothing, nothing happens by chance. And just as we heard this morning, God has designed each and every circumstance uniquely for who we are, for where we are, and for what God wants to do through us. Esther's confrontation with the king came because she recognized that, that, that all of the seemingly random events in her life, they, they all pointed towards one specific major event. I mean, she had been kidnapped, chosen, and made queen for such a time as this. And you and I need to recognize that nothing happens by chance in our lives as well. And when an opportunity presents itself to us to present the good news, we too need to understand that we too were created for such a time as that. And finally, we arrive at Esther's response. She says, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish... I perish. And so Esther's response completes the trifecta of responses that represents the gospel that we've been entrusted with. And that is, first, the gospel is mission critical. Secondly, it's time sensitive. And third, it is recklessly proclaimed. I mean, it's given without any thought to your own personal consequence. 
I mean, as Esther put it, if I perish, I perish. You know, I once read a story about a, an Iranian evangelist who had been arrested. He's sitting in his jail cell. He's awaiting his execution. <clears throat> and he claimed in this article that during the night he had a dream. And in the, in the dream, Jesus comes to him and he speaks to him. You know, I've heard in places where there's no Bible, that there, where the Bible is impossible to access, that, that many people, particularly Muslims, uh, have come to know Jesus through dreams. Dreams. And I, I certainly haven't seen that happening in this country because the Bible is available everywhere. But in cultures that have no scripture, it just might be the means that God uses to connect with his people. So this man is, is recounting this dream that he has, and Jesus appears to him in his dream, his dream, and he's asking him how he's doing. He says he frantically told Jesus he'd been faithful in sharing the gospel, that he'd been so faithful that he was arrested and because of his faithfulness he was now arrested and tried he was found guilty and now he's about to be executed he said Jesus response in the dream was so Jesus was completely nonplussed it's almost as if Jesus in that dream is saying oh, what's the big deal I mean I, I've realized this is just a dream it's not scripture it has no authority but it's also a fact that Jesus certainly seemed to have that same kind of attitude when he was speaking to the disciples about what they should expect in the end times. This is what he said in Matthew 24. He says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. Now, was Jesus being heartless? Or was he simply being realistic given the perspective that Jesus has that we don't? Now, I'm sure if I was that pastor sitting in that jail cell uh, awaiting my execution, I'd be a lot less than sanguine about my immediate future as he was. I mean, we can't help but cling to the only life that we know, and that's this one. But Jesus wants us to view our lives with reckless abandon when it comes to the gospel because he knows exactly what the stakes are. He also knows what limitless freedom is ours when we're willing to relax our grip on our life alone. Jesus made that quite clear when he said in Matthew 10, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so we ask, all right, how do we do that? How do we take our focus off this world and we put it squarely on the world to come? You know, Esther said, if I perish, I perish because she literally knew she had no other options. But understand, having no other option but God's kingdom, that's about as liberated as you can get. And there's an old Chris Christopherson song that has a great line in it. I'm sure you've all heard it. It's absolutely true. Her freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Well, Esther knew exactly that kind of freedom. There was literally nothing left to lose. And we see these examples in Scripture all the time. It's the same freedom that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego experienced when they refused to bow down and worship the idols that Nebuchadnezzar was demanding. He said, worship this golden idol or I'll throw you into a fiery furnace. Daniel 3.16 says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But... If not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. 
And those three words, but if not, said everything that needed to be said about the freedom that comes when you're willing to give up your most precious possession, and that's clearly your life itself, when you're willing to give that up for something even more precious, and that's the kingdom of God. I mean, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego told Nebuchadnezzar that, that God was quite capable of saving them, and if he did so, that would be fine. But they also said, if God decides not to save us and we burn up, and that's okay too. Either way, don't plan on us worshiping your golden image. And God's kingdom meant that much to them. And Nebuchadnezzar was absolutely furious because he held out to him what he thought was the ultimate threat. He's going to take their, their very lives away from them. And they gave him back the equivalent of what Jesus said to that Iranian pastor. They said, so? I mean, when you're willing to give up the most precious thing you have because you trust that God has something even more precious, you'll find a freedom and a power that very few people in the entire world have ever experienced. I mean, if you look at life the way Jesus did is the way Paul did for sure. It actually makes a lot of sense to be able to, to, to look at the scariest things in life through eternity's eyes. Then death becomes only a momentary inconvenience that opens the door to life that, as it's going to be for the next trillion or so years and beyond. You see, Jesus has a huge advantage over us in that he knows exactly what it is and where it is we're going. I mean, it was Jesus who said, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. I mean, we still see through a glass darkly, and so we cling to the only thing we know, which is this life. Now, remember the Apostle Paul and what he said about this life we live and the struggles we may be going through. This is what he said. He said, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It also should be noted that Paul's light and momentary afflictions included this. He's describing his own life. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. So how did he never lose heart? How could he describe that as light and momentary? Well, the, the answer is actually simple. He never took his eyes off the kingdom. So he managed to live his life recklessly proclaiming the gospel because he nurtured this split-screen view that combined an absolutely realistic view of this transient life that we're living here on earth with the wonders of the life in the kingdom that is eternal but unseen. It was his trust in a sovereign God and in that Romans 8.28 vision that everything is going to work out. That gave Paul the strength to see a life that most of us would regard as extraordinarily brutal and difficult as one that was just light and momentary. 
I mean, compared to an eternity of bliss, anything in this life can seem light and momentary. And that's the point. God says, focus in on what I have in store for you. Cling very lightly to this life and all of its trappings. And I'll give you not just the life to come, but I'll give you this life as well. I mean, this is just what Jesus was saying to his disciples. And they were saying, well, what are you going to do about food? What are you going to do about clothing? What are you going to do about living? He said it very simply in Matthew 6. He said, do not be anxious about anything, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so what he's saying is, get your kingdom priorities straight. Pour out your heart, your mind, your soul, and your body into recklessly advancing the kingdom of God and his glory. And God promises everything else, I promise you, will work itself out. You know, a few years back, I was reporting on a T4G conference we attended. And it was really about the whole idea of recklessly proclaiming the gospel. David Platt, he's the one who gives us Secret Church. He was one of the final speakers. He spoke about the reformers. And he entitled his message, Why Reformers Died in Their Day and How We Must Live in Ours. And he spoke about men like John Rogers, Roland Taylors, Rollins White, who all gloriously marched confidently to their fiery deaths, proclaiming the very same gospel that we believe in. Matt Chandler spoke of Hugh Lattimore and Nicholas Ridley, two other believers who willingly embraced being burned at the stake rather than deny their Lord. And in every case, these guys, they could have escaped simply by remaining silent or or recanting what they had said, but they refused. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their actions said, but if not. And like Esther, if I perish, I perish. But in their case, they did. They paid the ultimate price. I mean, Lattimore and Ridley were two faithful ministers who were brought before Mary, Queen of Scots. And this is what their crime was. They refused to deny that salvation was by faith alone in Christ alone. And they were brought out together on stakes to be burned. And Lattimore was heard to be saying to Ridley, be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. I mean, they both looked death in the face at And they basically said, so? And we said, well, how could they do that? Well, they were able to do that because they knew where they were headed. And they also knew that they were not alone. You see, they knew that God was right there with them, walking them through it. You see, when you proclaim a gospel that is mission critical, that is time sensitive and recklessly proclaimed, this is God's promise to you. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And that was God saying, no one's ever going to be burned up in a fire. No, not at all. I mean, hundreds of reformers met their deaths by being burned at the stake. And what God is saying here, what he's trying to get us to understand is that no matter what this world throws at you, I will be right there with you. And I'll give you the grace, the strength, and the power to endure it. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wind up in the furnace, they they see this promise literally being played out. 
I mean, they find out inside the furnace that they're not alone. There's a fourth person in there with them. Nebuchadnezzar's looking at the fire, and he says, I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Well, we learned this is the pre-incarnate Christ himself in the midst of the fire with them. And what God did literally with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what he does invisibly with Mordecai and Esther, he does spiritually with every single one of his children. He promises to walk through the very worst of it with us. That none of us will pass through those waters alone. None of us walk through the fires alone. I mean, my sister is learning that even now today. We had this conversation. She was saying there's so much Romans 8.28 going on even through this experience, and she was explaining some of those to me. That's the way it works. We've seen over and over again that God is faithful, and whether it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Lattimore, and Ridley, or, or Mordecai and Esther, we all know God will not abandon us. In Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, I've said it over and over again. You don't get boiling oil grace until you're thrown into boiling oil. And we've seen it time and time again. God is faithful. And when people go through superhuman tortures and struggles, it's because they're accompanied by a supernatural grace that they experience, and we don't. We say, how could anybody stand that when well, we're not the recipients of the grace that they've been given? I mean, Esther reached that moment in her life that was mission critical. I mean, nothing mattered more than the preservation of the Jewish nation that eventually would give rise to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Mordecai points out to her that not only is her role mission critical, but it's time-sensitive as well. He says, for such a time as this, you have been brought into this world and into this palace. And finally, Esther's ability to cast all caution to the wind and proceed knowing if I perish, I perish, is exactly what God wants from each of us. But understand, we in this country, we're not remotely looking at losing our lives for sharing the gospel. I mean, what we might lose is our standing, our pride, maybe at, at, at worst, our jobs. And it's highly doubtful that any, any one of us is ever going to say, if I perish, I perish, or, or but if not. And the question is, can we say, in spite of whatever threats we're facing for proclaiming the gospel, can we say it's all good? And can we say that because we know God is sovereign, that he's in charge, and that he will never let us down? And so my question to each of us this morning is, can you say that? It's all good. Do you believe that? Do you have the believer's mindset? And would you like to have the strength, the power, and the peace that can stare at death itself and say, so, then fix your eyes on the kingdom. Fix your eyes on the one who can give you that power. Trust in the God who says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for the gospel that you've given us that is mission-critical, time-sensitive, and needs to be far more recklessly proclaimed.
I pray that you would give us the courage to recognize just how important the task is that we've been given. I pray for opportunities this week. I pray that you will just deliver some of us into the hands of people who are desperately waiting to hear, or maybe completely indifferent as I was when I heard it the first two times. I pray that you would just give us these opportunities and that we would remember your words, remember what you've done, and deliver on that promise. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.